Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. I am your host and coach, Tyler Johnson. And whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you are in the right place. My guest this episode is a former Division I baseball player turned Navy SEAL. And after a decade of service to our country, he's now moved to serving others in the field of mental performance and leadership, founding his company Stonewall Solutions and YipsFree.com. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Jason Kuhn. today good how are you doing i'm well excited to have you on excited to have you share a little bit about uh your life experiences and, and as well as what you do now with uh the coaching side um sure. i think we've had you know a, a couple past uh military we've had some a lot of athletes on this podcast i don't know if we've had the combination of a, a former d1 athlete and a navy seal um i guess first take us kind of in your life, just that story part, what led you from college baseball into being a SEAL? Yeah, sure. So I uh, played baseball at Middle Tennessee State. We had some good teams back then. My junior year, we were ranked, I think we finished at 19th in the nation, played in regionals. Uh, I was a pitcher, bullpen guy, come in in high leverage situations, closer, close some games, and had every intention on taking my baseball career further as far as I could take it. And then I got the yips and I threw what I believe is the most wild pitches ever in a single inning in the NCAA. So yeah. we knew that the record at the time was seven in a game. I threw, I threw six in one inning. And uh, that was the last competitive game I ever played. I kept I kept showing up and kept trying, but I never got it back. Uh, that was uh, two, the spring of 2002. So that fall, the World Trade Centers have been attacked. So I was motivated by that. I uh, wanted to help uh, protect our country, protect the innocent uh, from another, another attack. And I was a capable young man. And couldn't think of anything more worthy to commit my life to. It also sounded challenging, you know, graduating college and having been channeled everything into baseball. Nothing really sounded very challenging to me, um, you know, to just kind of you know, get a job. And so yeah. that and then it was a you know a path for redemption for my uh, failure in baseball. When I say failure, you know, I, I failed short of my potential anyways. Mm. So went into the Navy, uh, went through the pipeline to Buds and uh, Hell Week, all those things and got into the teams and. Spent about a decade total from the time I went to boot camp um, from I contracted as well. So about a decade total in special operations world. Nice. I know we'll, we'll definitely going to come back and, and talk about the yips a little bit um, in, in that experience. And then, you know, following your, your experience, you know, the decade in, in the military, Stonewall Solutions. Tell us a little bit about that and what kind of led you into, you know, that tangent of what you do now with, with Stonewall. Yeah, well, I think it was all really a godsend. You know, I was at another transition point in life where, you know, it was baseball and then it was special operations. And then, it's, you know, again, what do I do with myself? And uh, I had a family at that point. I had uh, two young kids and had applied for some jobs and business management, trying to utilize my degree from college and just get some money in the bank to support my family. And everything just seemed to fall through. And we were getting really short financially and things were getting difficult. 
I started a couple of entrepreneurial endeavors in the security world and a couple of different things. I really can't remember all of it exactly, but, you know, with other people too, and those went okay, but ultimately failed and was uh, really at a rough point. And a friend of mine called was consulting with the Vanderbilt football team. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, yeah. and or just north of it. And he asked if I'd come speak to the team and run them through some team building drills, me and another another former SEAL. So we put it together in a couple of days, went out there, did that. And it was a lot of fun. It ended on a real high note, uh, kind of mosh pit style, everybody shoving and shouting. And I felt alive again. I had not been involved with sports since I left it yeah. and had an idea there. So I started... Uh, speaking to local teams and working with them all to help enhance their performance through mental toughness and team first mindset. And it grew into a curriculum and a training program. And I've been doing that for almost a decade. August will be 10 years since uh, I've been in business doing that. That's awesome. When you kind of look back at the, that transition of, you know, being a college athlete and going through buds and everyone hears you know stories and they see the the tv specials and things that that they do on buds uh what were some of the the skills maybe as an athlete that you did lean on through that experience well certainly overcoming adversity you know uh, in baseball there's a lot of adversity to deal with a lot of failure to deal with and uh having those experiences not only on the field but you know, relationships and the implosion in baseball and, you know, being forged by that um, rather than than broken. That was a really difficult experience that got pretty dark at times. But I learned a lot about myself. I found God through it and um, became more capable from it. And so, you know, that led to, to that. So having had that experience prior, I think really helped in terms of my motivation, because to get through that course, I say, you know, it, it's really hard. And there's some really, really good men that go there and fail. It's, it, it's and, difficult. Uh, and I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I mean, it's just, it's just, I mean that in, um, you know, we look at, Oh, this guy quit or that guy quit. I mean, most people have no idea what they faced or how well they did just to get to hell week much less. Sure. So, um, you know, having, having overcome adversity and, and then being driven by meaningful purpose, those things that I mentioned earlier, the, the redemption for my failure, wanting to protect the innocent and, um, you know, and, and I saw it as a, as a great adventure, a challenge, striving to be the best and a part of team, you know, that's, it's the SEAL teams. And uh, so the motivation was there and uh, the experiences were there to, to help me. And now, now, now Buds is, you know, <laughs> has more adversity in a day than you've experienced your entire life mostly, but and day after day after day for about six months, but having been through some tough things prior and learning how to engage those effectively helps when you get there for sure. Yeah. You, you know, when you listen to other people's experiences, you often hear the, the high quality of men and people that that come into butts, right? Amazing resumes, you know, whether it's athletic, this or that. Um, but it, it seems to always be, you know, it's the team first, the seal first kind of mentality that that those are the people that survive. Um, was that something that when you show, showed up to Buds, was it easy for you, or was it something that you had to acquire in the the first little time frame there? As far as buying into the team first mentality, yeah, yeah, no, that was something that I was seeking out of it that I knew what it was about. So that, as far as buying into that and the effectiveness of it, was uh, yeah, that was pretty easy because that was something that I really enjoyed in baseball. You know, I'd played on a lot of teams you know, from select teams growing up to, you know, college where a lot of times we were an underdog and, you know, that sense of team and grit would 
elevate our level of play. So yeah. that was something that I took a lot of pride in and enjoyed. And I knew that that's what I would find in, in the SEAL teams and did. You know, I say we cared about two things, really, winning in the team. And if you make that the foundation of what you do, you really can't go too wrong. The rest will flow from there. Yeah, I love that, winning in the team. Uh, I think when you do see what they're able to capture and share on TV, it is a lot of, you know, this physical demanding thing. But in going through SEAL training, um, there's also a lot of other emotional intelligence. There's team connection. Can you talk about some of those things that, that maybe happen more in the classroom or other dynamics that aren't when you're in the ocean full of sand? Yeah. So there is, you know, some classroom work. I mean, some of it is learning, you know, dive charts and tables to, you know, the operation of weapons, uh, how to calculate minimum safe distances from explosives, how to use the explosives, whatever it may be. A lot of the, you know, I guess in terms of mindset and team first mentality, I mean, most of that is taught through application. And so that's what I attempt to do through the application drills that I do with sports teams is it's not really a mini buds. I'm not trying to find out how tough you are or make people quit when I do drills like this with teams right. to take what we've learned in the classroom. If you say mental toughness is an ability to respond to adversity and adversity is when we meet circumstances that are outside of our control and unfair, it's going to naturally make us feel frustrated, disappointed and resentful towards the entities that help create the situation. That's the natural cycle. So mental toughness, it's an ability to interrupt that cycle, shift focus into action and your teammates. And then what motivates that is by appreciating the value in it, so on and so forth. So we go through an academic portion, if you will, explain it, articulate it, what it is, how to apply it how to take, and then I'll have a proof of concept. I'll tell a story from combat or training to prove the concept is true or support my assertion. But then we put them in situations where we go apply it, just where if I ask somebody how to hit a baseball, they're going to tell me how to hold the bat and how to stand and, you know, hips go, hands go, so on and so forth. But then we're going to go hit a bunch of baseballs. Yeah. And that's what I thought was missing. And, you know, the mental toughness realm there was there's a lot of speakers and people who come in and tell a story, but are we really defining it? And are we really putting it in a, uh, an explanation where, you know, the people who you're speaking to can go apply this uh, in their personal lives or in their professional lives, and then putting them through an application process where, hey, we're going to practice this before we have to use it in a live setting. And yeah. so that's the idea behind that and uh, the team first mindset as well. But most of that is drilled into you through the drills that you do in BUDS from log PT. I mean, almost everything you do there is done as a team and it's a competition and it pays to be a winner, right? Yeah. So winning teams move on and, uh, you know, all the losing teams get uh, hammered. There's a consequence for failure, but there's purpose to it all, right? There's in, in training, there's two ways to train yourself for something. There's error-free training where you can explore your boundaries, attempt new things, you know, maybe develop different fundamentals that are better than the ones you have. Um, and then there's also training with a consequence for failure because that invokes pressure and stress and learning to train like you fight and operate under those conditions. Because that's really what changes from, say, a practice scenario to a competitive scenario is one, physical fatigue, and then two, competitive stress, because now there's a consequence, good or bad, for your success or failure within it, right? Yeah, I think that's always important because it's very easy to talk and do and practice mental training in a classroom. <laughs> um and and leave feeling good but you know a lot of coaches student athletes that listen to this podcast i think there's when it comes to mental skills i love your your insight on you know there's personal personal application and what's gonna you know the mix of things that's gonna put you in the right right performance mindset uh or maybe not in your opinion uh maybe it's just a few things but that personal application and then you know really being able to i think test 
what works and what doesn't work, it requires some sort of stress and duress. Um, can you talk about why we need that stress and duress to really figure out, you know, how we can best prepare to navigate the things that we're going to encounter, whether it's in performance or in life? Yeah, I think so. So there's both, right? There's the error-free training, and then there's the stress and duress and training under that. And it goes back to me. One of the things they taught us there, and it goes back to a Greek philosopher, I forgot his name, but it's you don't rise to the occasion, you default to your standard of training. And that's pretty common in the athletic world, a common phrase. But man, if anything was proven true to me when I got into dynamic and adverse situations, that was it. You respond to the habits that you've created. And so when I teach performance, I think that performance is an ability to execute fundamentals under stress. And fundamentals are controllable actions of value. But the key is to understand that fundamentals, the controllable actions of value are not only in our skill sets. Now that's number one, that's vital. We got to be good at what we do. We've got to know how to fire our weapon, but there's also, or, or throw the baseball or do whatever it is, deliver a sales presentation. But we also need to understand that there's fundamentals in how we choose to think and how we interact with our teammates and or supporting cast. And all three of those working together produce best possible outcomes and best possible outcomes over time creates consistent performance, which starts to create separation. And then that's what makes us elite. And I believe that's very easily proven because I can teach anyone how to jump, dive and shoot some of the core skill sets of a special operator. But having those skill sets alone doesn't make one effective in combat the next day. And we've also those teams that have, you know, are super talented, but can't seem to win or at least win at the level at which they're expected to. And then teams who had almost no expectations of winning go on and win. Well, why is that? And I think that's exactly why they, whether they realize it or not, they're executing those fundamentals of mindset and culture that are effective for performance in high pressure environments. And one thing that motivated me with working with teams was, you know, for me growing up, it felt like on a lot of the teams that I was on, some good and some bad, the team chemistry and the makeup of that was kind of left up to chance, right? We go get really good players and hopefully they get along well and gel, you know, yeah. and they build trust within each other. Well, is there a blueprint or a formula that we can follow that will help create that and give us that competitive advantage? Because we all know it's there and we all know how valuable um, it is. And so that's what I wanted to create through the curriculum that I developed. I call it the fundamentals of winning. Love it. When you from your experiences have you seen teams either in person or observed otherwise where they maybe take things from the seal or military world and you just kind of shake your head and you're like you know total misapplication towards athletics or coaching or something that you just kind of shake your head at that that's that's not really how it's done well, personally, I don't know how much of that I've I've really experienced, you know, just just witnessed or whatever, but I'm, you know, I'm sure that it occurs at times. And then it's also on I, I wanted to be very careful in my own sense of how I was delivering information and my own experiences to make sure that it was relatable, relevant, and transferable to whatever team that we're working with and the dynamics of their competitive environment, right? So does a leadership structure that's extremely decentralized in a, in a special operations group, does that fit with a corporate group who has thousands of people and, um, you know, it may be different, okay? So we can only empower people according to their capability and and the, and, and what we're able to, you know, and, and that is kind of determined by, you know, the quality of person we're able to come in and, and compensation and how we're able to develop them along the way. So, you know, honoring the differences there and understanding, you know, how it works. But I do believe, you know, combat is a competitive environment. Um, it's just the ultimate one because it involves life and death. So the emotional attachment to the outcome is at its highest level. 
But what combat does is it eliminates the clutter. When bullets start flying, a way of acting, thinking, or interacting with your teammates is either effective or it's not. And so it teaches you what works, and it's certainly applicable to any other competitive environment you go you go do, whether it's football, baseball, or or the boardroom. And some are more relevant than others, right? But they all have an um, you know some application at least. And uh, but with, with teams, certain teams that need this or need that, or according to what's uh, most needed or relevant to their situation, will kind of bury in on that. You know, whether it's mental toughness or team first or leadership or you know how to fail effectively or whatever it may be. Sure. When uh, let's get back to uh, the the yips for a minute, back to, sure. back to baseball. I know uh, that's something that you specialize in in fixing. Um, I think I heard you say in maybe another podcast. Or I know you mentioned the wild pitches, but did the uh, the base runners stopped moving as a as a courtesy to you? Is that correct, or what? Yeah. What, what was the story? <laughs> yeah, so this was my senior season in baseball. So I'd already played a lot, and you know we had we'd had a, a good season the year prior. And so the point is, is that, you know, it wasn't like I made this jump from high school to college and then lost it. I had already played and played well in college and I wasn't going to be a high round pick or, uh, you know, potentially not not picked at all. But I think that most people would agree, you know, maybe like a mid-level prospect. I'd probably get picked up mid late in the draft. And uh, that was very important to me. So I uh, when I was on the mound, yeah, I, uh, it's hard to remember exactly. I know we were at ETSU and East Tennessee State University. That's not where I played. We were playing against them. I was middle Tennessee state. And I know I threw several to the backstop. And at some point they stopped moving runners. And when the runners don't move, it's not recorded as an official wild pitch. So I think I probably threw, we'd have to ask my catcher, but he, I mean, I would say it was about 20 (laughs) Mm -hmm. to the backstop where I completely missed the catcher. I almost hit the on deck batter once it was, it was a rough day. I know I caught on, I think it may have been the same podcast. Uh, Your catcher came out and spoke to you. Um, when you talk about team first and, and putting and supporting others, uh, what did your catcher come out and say to you in, in that moment? Yeah, my catcher was my best friend and my roommate, and um, he joined the military as well. We saw each other in Baghdad yeah. years later, so it's wow. a pretty cool story in our relationship. But he came out and did the best that he knew how. He's like, hey, relax, take a deep breath. And, you know, the yips is not a... I, I separate it from performance anxiety. I think that sure. performance anxiety and the way that I define it is a rational awareness of the situation. And now I'm nervous or afraid. And there's a different way of going about that. That's not what the yips is. It's right. a different thing. And there was no name for the yips or anything back then. So none of us had any idea what was going on really. So he came out and he said, Hey man, you know, just relax, take a deep breath. And I, I was like, Hey, let's just turn towards center field. So nobody in the stands and, you know, the dugouts could really see us and, I looked at him and I said, hey, buddy, you know, I'm not nervous anymore. I'm not afraid and I'm not embarrassed. We're well beyond that. You know, I used to be, but I'm, I'm past that now. I, I just want to throw well. And I pulled up my arm and I looked at it and I said, just, I can't make my arm do what it's supposed to do. And he said, well, you keep on throwing them then, good buddy, and I'll keep on going and getting them. And so we had a little bit of a laugh and he went back behind the plate and I continued to throw until eventually, you know, coach came out and got me. But he yeah. left me out there, our coach, we had discussed it prior uh, you know, to try to throw through it and just see if I could work it out. So it wasn't any kind of thing where he was hanging me out to dry or anything like that, or gotcha. trying to embarrass me or anything. Gotcha. When it, it comes to what yeah, has now been labeled the yips, uh, can you talk about that relationship between mental and mechanical and as how the yips go? Yeah. And how they interrelate and what comes first. 
Yeah, and if I get too long on it, just stop me because it's um, it's a pretty complex thing. But basically, sure. the way I define the yips in a simple explanation is it's involuntary tension, okay? And it's involuntary tension during the execution of an action. So in baseball, it's the delivery of the throw. In golf, it's as you're striking the club or striking the ball. Volleyball setters will get it. So it's where you need fine dexterity in a joint so mostly in the wrist is where you see it because that's the action in sports say a free throw but you can see it in a field goal kicker and soccer and the ankle and stuff like that so there is a mechanical interruption taking place all right but the mechanical interruption taking place is due to a subconscious initiation of tension so for example if you and i were having this conversation in that room and out of nowhere unexpectedly for no reason i threw a punch at your chest and you don't have time to get your hands up you know you're going to make your muscles tight to absorb that blow and protect yeah. your vital organs that's the brain's natural default response and self-preservation and survival instincts so due to a you know various awarenesses and past experiences the brain is doing the same thing in the subconscious. So there's intentional and automated, right? So I'm talking with my hands now. That's all been automated. I haven't been thinking about it. I am now, right? right? Yeah. Awkward. Sure. But if I'm going to punch somebody. That's very intentional. I'm going to throw a baseball. So right yeah. as we're going to deliver the ball, the subconscious perceives a threat. It says protect yourself. And there's two muscle groups that run through your arm and hands and fingers. One does this. It extends the wrist. And one does this. It makes it tight. All right. And as you go to throw, the hand gets tight and the arm and wrist and then the ball squirts out the side because you have no you have no dexterity and it goes way high in arm side and what follows is like wow i gotta follow through or you know get extension without realizing that there's a mechanical interruption taking place yeah i didn't realize that i just thought i was following through way over here or way over there but as we do and you can't get you can't get it clean you end up wrapping around the side of it as you try to extend and that's where you see the spikes and the slider spin on the ball so on and so forth. So that's in a nutshell. You know, I could talk about an hour for an hour just what the yips is and how it works. But yeah. that's that's what's going on. And so I developed a system to retrain and uh, rehabilitate from that and find relief from it. Are there uh, how many different sports have you worked with uh, people encountering this on the, on the yips specifically? Yeah. Too, baseball and golf baseball and golf do you do you see or come across it do you, in other sports as well so yeah i've i've, I've uh, heard that there you know that volleyball setters get it although i've never seen it live and i've never worked with a volleyball player i've read articles where gotcha. that's happened i have seen it on video and in, in basketball games although i think it's rare uh with free throw shooting but you'll you there's a guy or two um even though i'm very involved in sports i really don't watch it or track it that much unless it's a yeah. team that i've worked with or a player yeah uh, but you see where they can't really get it off clean from the free throw line. And then in football and field goals, there's I've seen guys kick field goals uh, from the NFL down where I th I'm like, yeah, that's it. Um, and um, gymnastics, you know, they call it the twisties. And I want to learn more about that because I don't know much about gymnastics, but I really believe that that's the same thing, too, probably. Yeah, some sort of mental block. Yeah, the way they uh, what they do in the air yeah, blows my mind for sure. Uh, right. There was the uh, the Olympic player where she was struggling and, and, and people were like, hey, you know, you're in. And so if what she, if what she has was was the yips or, or a very similar thing, that's where I, I had a lot of empathy for because I'm like, hey, it's not like it's like you're playing injured. And, you know, if she's flipping and turning and whatever and she literally can't execute that, then it's not like she was afraid and just bailed. It's it's you know, I don't know that situation. I don't know her. I, I can't remember her name, but right. I remember seeing that and thinking like, man, everybody needs to give her give her a break here. You know, when I think like just like you said, if it's, you know hindering performance uh you know you could 
further harm yourself physically, you know, if you're not able right, to ex I mean, execute. Imagine waking up one day, knowing how to write your name your whole life, and then just being unable to do it, being able to write other things, being able to tell someone how to write your own name, but you can't yeah. do it yourself and you don't understand why. Well, yeah, apply now. I'm going to go do, you know, I'm going to go do a backflip or something and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to yeah. land on my or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When, when it comes to more of not the yips, the more, you know, anxiety that we feel as athletes you know walking into to yankee stadium kind of example you know big game uh younger kids you know got a homecoming game kind of thing you're overexcited for what, what are the kind of the key things that usually try to get them to calm them down and help them be more in the moment yeah i would go two places with that one would be the team first mindset so a majority of our fear and anxiety comes what's going to happen to us Right. Mm -hmm. So am I going to succeed or fail? Am I going to live or die in combat? So if we're in our ready room, getting all of our gear on, getting ready to go on a mission and I start feeling afraid, like, hey, man, I could get I could get killed or blown up or get somebody else killed, whatever. Right. If I if I if I think of that anxiety as a parasite feeding off self-concern, well, if we defer our concern to the well-being of teammate and mission success, then it has nothing to latch on to, nothing to feed upon. And then as we act in that manner. We then create at least trust and ultimately love within each other. And those are the greatest motivators of aggression, which is what we need to perform and succeed well when we're competing against other human beings. But the action creates the emotion, not the other way around. It's in that order and that order only. And that's why, you know, if we put brotherhood, family or teamwork on a locker room sign or a T-shirt, we've got to live it. And when we feel it and when we feel it, it's incredibly powerful. So I tell people in, in the keynotes and stuff and in the classrooms you know, if you had the chance to come fight me and if you win the fight, you could have the status of having taken down a Navy SEAL, you know, would you do it? And most of the time, everybody says no. And then I'll switch it and I'll say, well, think if, you know, imagine if I had the person you love the most in this world behind me and you had to come through me to get to him or you'd never see him again. Would you fight me now? And everybody says, yes. You know, and I say, well, the problem didn't change. The motivation behind the problem changed. And one, you're fighting for self-gain and status. And in the other one, you're fighting for a cause greater than yourself. But that feeling you had about that person that would motivate you not only to fight, but probably find a way to win didn't pop out of thin air with magic. It was created by meeting an expectation and a standard over the course of time. Yeah. So, you know, we take that to the level of the more discipline it requires to achieve that standard every day and attention to detail and work ethic and whatever it may be, the more trust you build. And I think we take that to about, you know, I think we max it out. But if you can, def you know, we had this phrase, it's not that we're that good. It's that everybody else sucks. If you can just establish some level of that, uh, that is above the status quo, you're going to get better results. And then I also developed one called high pressure composure. And on that one is, you know, it's for prior to an at bat, prior to a high leverage situation, a game winning field goal, whatever it may be. And I'll say, you got to free yourself from the requirement of the outcome. You know, like a baseball player, big leaguer one time came up. He's like, man, I got to get a hit every time because I'm playing behind two former all-stars and I'm at the end of my career. And that threat is very real. And I said, well, bud, you're, you're placing a requirement on yourself that's, I guess theoretically it's possible, you know, you could bat a thousand, but nobody's ever done it. Nobody's ever even come close to it. So um, you're placing a requirement that's next to impossible to achieve and that's creating pressure and stress. So your job's not to get a hit every time. If that was your job, nobody would have one because nobody would ever achieve it. So it's not that we're becoming apathetic. Okay. I don't like it when people teach apathy or to just stop caring, to be able to relax because yeah. one, it's not possible. It's like telling a fire to stop being so hot. It's learning how to <laughs> channel it into aggression, but into something that's attainable. So your job's not to get a hit every time. It's to be the best hitter you can be. Okay. 
and then channel that focus into, you know, in, into segments, whether it's pitch or at bat or inning, whatever it may be. And then to be grateful. So, you know, worst thing that happens is you walk into a big league stadium and you get to take batting practice today and you want more and you should have more and you shouldn't be, you know, no settle for less. But at the end of the day, you know, you have a very unique experience that you're going to have today and the next day and the next day that most will never get to do. Just like for me and the SEAL teams, I had incredible experiences that you can't have anywhere else. And so, I, you know, I told him, hey, think about me, man, because I'll never get to have an at bat in Yankee Stadium. And when we're in a state of gratefulness, we're calm. And where we want to be when we compete is relaxed, but focused with a controlled aggression. And, you know, thankfulness and negativity are and, and, and fear and all that they're opposed to each other. You know, you can't you can't be both at the same time. So to get there, you think of someone who'd like to be where you're at and then. So, you know, good, strong body language as you walk up there to to execute. You know, when you're walking through a city where it feels like everyone there wants to kill you, it's real easy to kind of start getting the Scooby-Doo walk, right? So you carry yourself strong and with intention and um, and then spark confidence through self-talk. You say something um, to yourself or to the opponent in your head that just makes you, gives you that outlaw confidence that you need to be who you are and at your best, you know, when you're at your best. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, just a little bit ago, uh, love and trust. Um, mm-hmm. I used to talk when teams, you know, you can push people as far as they trust you. And when we trust each other, we can push each other a lot. Um, how can coaches and, you know, student athletes that might be listening, build a better sense of trust with their team if they're looking to well, do so? Yeah, I'd say at the very beginning, what I do with teams is we establish a who, what, why. And I do that with individuals as well. So it's establishing an ego and an identity. Ego, not in arrogance, but in self-worth and perception value, right? And uh, that's grounded internally versus dictated to us externally by a preseason ranking or whatever it may be, media, social media, so on and so forth. So who are we? What do we want to accomplish this year? Why do we want to accomplish it? A... um, a motto and then a legacy we want to leave behind. You know, this is the only time in the history of the world that this group of people will be exact group of people will be together to accomplish something this season. So what do we want them to say about us when we're done or about me when I leave earth or my season or whatever it may be. Right. So that's, that's to establish it um, right there. And then, you know, if you want to build mental toughness, you do hard things. And if you want to build trust within each other, you do hard things together and you don't quit, you know? And so that's part of, you know, strength and conditioning coaches can get involved there or, you know, you hire services like mine, although there's, there's more to it than that. You know, a team doesn't need to bring me in to have a difficult workout program where we're, you know, exploring our boundaries and pushing beyond them and building trust within each other. So it's living that pre-established standard, I think, in some capacity, and then doing hard things, pushing those boundaries, not so much so that, you know, guys are walking away or whatever else and getting people hurt or anything like that. But there's there's all sorts of ways to set that up uh, to where, you know, we're making the conditions, you know, and that's where like I got a lot of college teams do their Omaha challenge week or whatever else. And that's what that's all about. You know, it's just hard to build outside of that. Um, but, you know, there are ways that you can do it just, you know, going through the season and responding to adversity well there and be, you know, maintaining that team first mindset. And it doesn't have to be anything extravagant. You know, you don't have to go run with a log and cold water, but I tell guys, you know, one of the things they taught us to say in our mind and patrol was if I get shot at right now, what will I do to support my buddy amongst other things? So I say, well, what's one thing you can do to support your teammate today? Just something simple, man, you know, get him, fill up his water bottle or set up the tea for him or ask him how the hell he's doing and put the phone away for a minute, you know, something like that. Just, just little things talk to each other. Yeah. Um, 
the work you do now. Uh, I love your passion. Uh, you can feel it even though we're through Zoom uh, right now. What uh, what brings you the most joy? You mentioned kind of that moment when you went back to to kind of work with te- you know sports teams. Um, but what brings you most joy in the in the work you do? Yeah, seeing seeing teams and players succeed. You know, I, I love it. You know, we uh, when I first started, I guess that goes to a good story. There's Knock High School up north of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and prior to meeting these guys they had only in the history of the school they had only won you know i think one playoff game ever in the history of the school so we went up there and went through the classroom training ran through the application drills on the field and uh those young men responded to it really well trained them up and it wasn't just me i mean the coach was uh coach was phenomenal uh just a great a, a great man and uh you know for the all, all for the right reasons and then those guys went on and they won the state championship in pennsylvania not not just the west or east division where they split i mean they won the whole freaking thing nice and so i had just gotten started was really low on money not sure um you know what i was going to do but i was starting to do these team building programs i was trying to follow the score on twitter and um lost my connection. My wife was driving and we got it. And I saw that they had won and, you know, had tears in my eyes, was really happy. And she looked at me and she said, you know, this is whatever it takes. This is what you're going to do with your life. And, you know, so the, um, you know, seeing to be able to take your experiences and help others through them. Um, I believe this is from Jordan Peterson. He said something along the lines of, you know, when you suffer well, you grow in character and a growth in character makes you more capable and a more capable person can achieve more. And I think through that achievement, both what we produce in it tangibly and the lessons learned along the way, we can help other people on a meaningful level. And that's what provides fulfillment in life. And that's really what I seek through this is because we're not always going to be happy. Life's dark and it's mean. And if our goal in life is to be happy all the time, that's going to be a frustrating goal. But we can find fulfillment through our pain and how we choose to respond to it. And you know, at the time, you know, you don't know why, but then I met Tyler Matzik, who had been out of baseball for a while, a prior first rounder and had the yips yep. and had done all the things big leagues had told him to do. And we even got some criticism while we were working together. People saying, hey, we're prolonging his suffering and, you know, it's time for him to move on. And um, but we stayed with it, mostly him. I mean, I just pointed him in the right direction. He did all the work and just a phenomenal dude. Well, he gets back, wins the World Series with the Atlanta Braves after being out of ball completely for five years and where I was watching him pitch and the world series, he struck some dudes out. I can't remember exactly, but I hugged my wife again, tears in my eyes. And I said, you know, at the time I thought the yips was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And it was at the time, but now I think it's the best thing that ever happened because having lived the life that I've lived, I'd rather be here watching him pitch in the game than pitch in the game myself. And it was incredibly fulfilling. So we may not always know what's going on at the time, but if we believe through faith that there's purpose to it, to forge us and develop us into our full potential and a path that we really need to be on, um, then we can get through it. And that's that's exactly what happened to me. I was I was broken and um, couldn't sleep and didn't know what to do with myself and was reaching for the whiskey again just to drown it and go so I could go to bed. And I stopped and I just prayed. And probably the first real prayer I ever said and tried to be still and just feel God's presence without any preconceived notion of what anyone had told me God was. And I said, Jesus, help me. And those are the words that came out of my mouth. And when I did, I felt I felt peace. I still couldn't throw and and whatever, but the tension and the anger and the bitterness and the confusion all kind of went away. Everything kind of just dropped a level. And I said, why? And when I said why, meaning like, why did this happen to me? You know, if I can wrap my head around the purpose, then I can move on. And I felt these words on my heart, not audibly or visually or any kind of, you know, there wasn't an angel standing in front of me, but just on my heart from somewhere other than myself, uh, just wait, something better is coming for you. 
And at that point, I believed that there was purpose to what I was going through. And I was able to reframe the way I viewed the circumstances. I, I thought I had lost my purpose in life. But when I stopped viewing it as having taken my purpose and viewed it as having purpose is when I was able to move forward and then, you know, ultimately go achieve more, help other people and find fulfillment. So sharing those lessons along the way, seeing people apply them and then succeed at a level that, you know, surprises even them is, is just um, extremely rewarding. Love that story. I appreciate you sharing. And uh, one more question as we, we, we wrap up. Uh, if you could go visit, uh, you know, 16 year old Jason in a time machine uh, throughout, <laughs> through all your experiences on the ball field, the battlefield uh, family, what's one thing you'd uh, want to share with teenage self? Man, that's a great question. And I'm not really sure exactly how to answer it, to be honest with you, I guess, uh, you know, okay. the mistake that I made along the way and the things that I went through, there's certainly things I could have done differently, but I did the best that I knew how at the time for who I was and the information and mentorship that I had available at the time and, you know, developed into what it developed into. So I wouldn't trade any of that, but I guess to, you know, one of the things that kind of led to my implosion was a need for affirmation and validation from certain sources and, and, and people. I always kind of felt like an underdog and overlooked rather than just being really grounded and, and, and who I am. And, you know, when I failed in baseball, I had been so focused on, you know, the difficult things in my personal life and people who helped, you know, contribute to them and, um, you know, the, the failures in baseball along the way. And so far focused forward on the draft, I kind of forgot about that kid who loved playing baseball. I started trying at it instead of playing it. And that's when everything goes bad, you know? And, um, that's not on anyone else but myself. You know, it was where I placed my value in, in that need for, um, you know, validation and affirmation. And I placed it, didn't always place it in the, in the right places. And that's on me and no one, uh, no one but me. But I stopped also in, in that reflection and prayer in my dorm room there. And I remember thinking, you know, I started thinking about standing my ground and fighting as a kid and, um, uh, uh you know, the good things, a no hitter, game winning hit. And I thought, man, you are tough, dude. That is who you are. You do have what it takes. And I think that's the question a lot of young males have, especially is, you know, do I have what it takes? And we enter into an arena and, um, and I thought you, you are, you are tough. That is who you are. So just be grounded in the truth of it, but channel it into service of team and mission. Right. And that, that's probably, uh, you know, an understanding that what I do doesn't define who I am, who I am defines what I do. But that's a difficult concept when you're a teenager and you're still developing that, that identity, you know what I mean? And ego and and really understanding how ego plays into things. Again, not an arrogance, but also an ego is also in in that need of affirmation and stuff like that. So that, that would probably be be the number one thing, because as far as adversity and mental toughness and stuff, I mean, I couldn't articulate it back then, what it was or how to be it. But I mean, you know, I was... Uh, I, you know, I, I, I would, I wouldn't back down for much if ever, you know, yeah. <laughs> I could always stand in front of the train. I had that ability, just, just learning how to channel all those things into the right way. You said the the word again, and you brought it up earlier and I wanted to come back to that point before we got out of here, but uh, ego, um, it, it get I was, it gets a bad rap sometimes, right? You're egocentric, the way we talk about it, but it does have some positive purpose, um, you know, then it's like, Hey, where's those self-affirmations going to your ego? Right. <laughs> like, um, so, so can you talk about the healthiness of, of, you know, that internal ego versus that external ego? 
Yeah. So, I mean, ego, it all really comes down to how we're defining it, you know? So it's like right. egotistical or, but you, have to have, you know, if we're, if we're, if we're defining it as, you know, self-perception and worth, then we have to have it, you know, and, and we all have it. Right. And it's a matter of understanding, you know, through, you know, as you grow and you, you a lot of your identity and ego is shaped through your experiences and the mentors you have as you go through those experiences. And, you know, when they're good, it's great. And sometimes they're not so good. So it's, you know, learning eventually of, you know, where you're going to, you know, look to look towards for that. And I always say, look to someone who's been where you want to go, you know, um, and understanding that. But then over time, as you develop all of these things is, you know, I, I you start having a recogn a, rec um, a higher level of awareness, a recognition of, um, you know, why you are the way you are, why you say the things you you say or feel like it, or, you know, I'm, you're always in fight mode or whatever it may be. And then, you know, so I guess to kind of summarize that, if you're really grounded in who you are, and then I was reading a verse the other day in the Bible and said, you know, true love drives out all fear. And so if you're really grounded in who you are and, um, you know, love others, then, um, you know, it, it, it drives out a lot of the fear that we have uh, before we go do do anything. And I think all of that kind of takes place with that, that grounding, yeah. you know? And you said that, uh, one of our early guests that I mentioned that was also, um, went through, uh, was a buds instructor for a little while, uh, after his career as well. But when I asked him how he defined mental toughness, he said it was how much you loved yourself. Okay. Uh, kind of, uh, you know, he explained a little bit more, but, uh, if you had to shortly, you know, sum up what mental toughness is, uh what what is it if you had to put it into just very few words oh yeah absolutely and you know i think that yeah you do have to you know love yourself in some capacity or value it but we all we all make mistakes you know we do we do bad things and dark things and that's where i think redemption comes in through through jesus but in the same way in mental toughness you know once you have that grounding there's going to be the adversity that that you experience so i assign properties to adversity i think it's when you meet circumstances that are outside of your control and unfair. And so, as we said earlier, it makes you naturally feel disappointed, resentful, and frustrated. Okay. So there's nothing wrong with feeling that way. If you didn't feel that way, you'd be a sociopath or something, right? It's not about not feeling anything. It's about moving off of it quickly. How fast can you make the transition into the execution of action and then shifting your focus into your teammates and not just getting through it, but leading through it, understanding you can control only how you respond and, you know, not everything that happens to us is our fault, but the way we respond to everything that happens to us is our responsibility. And our response will either have value or no value in an effort to win. And what motivates our ability to shift that focus is appreciating the value adversity plays in our lives. It creates a struggle. Struggle creates opportunity for reward, and there is no reward without the struggle. And the greater the struggle, the greater the reward, right? So that's where the phrase embrace the suck comes from, because it's coming whether you like it or not. What are you going to do with it? Mm -hmm.